Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, we have another very, very special two-parter for you again today. I will tell you about the second guest when we get to that point, because first up is Paul Humphreys of OMD. I have been wanting to have someone from OMD on the show for years. If you guys, I think everybody out there knows I'm a gigantic fan. I think a lot of you are fans. I've always specifically wanted to talk to Paul because Andy, let's be honest, Andy is one of the great frontmen in all of pop music. Underrated, too. They are one of the best live acts around. And again, underrated. You don't always think of the synth bands as being really incredible live, but OMD is, absolutely. Paul, to me, he does fewer of the of the interviews. He's a little more soft-spoken. I just thought, I wonder what Paul's story is. You know what I mean? They, you know, so I think everyone knows they, they were so big there in the 80s. And then around the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, they sort of split. I always assumed that split was acrimonious, but it wasn't. Not according to Paul, anyway. One thing that's really interesting, and I don't know if a lot of people know about this. Paul had a project called The Listening Pool. They only ever put out one album that he did when he left OMD that is fantastic. And then he paired up with Claudia Brooken of Propaganda as one, two, and they put out some music as well. So I want to get into all of this, find out really what motivates them to be so good live, hear the stories behind a lot of the hits, um, and then just, you know, uncover, let them know how much I love them. OMD are the best. Now, if you have not been paying as much attention to the last three albums that they've put out since they reformed. The first was History of Modern. Then there was English Electric. And lately there was The Punishment of Luxury. All three of these albums are fantastic. And they are absolutely on par with anything the band ever did back in the 80s during their heyday. I want to kick it off here with one of my favorite songs from these three newer albums. This is Pulse off of History of Modern. I love this track. So if you're new to, if all you really know of OMD is the greatest hits, which let's be honest, everybody knows that, or some of the bigger stuff from back in the day, and you still love them, but you're not as paying as close attention to their newer albums, rectify that now because these newer albums are fantastic. Okay. One thing I will tell you, he had a little bit of spotty Wi-Fi, so the there was some lag. We were kind of talking over each other. It wasn't quite as fluid as I would have liked. And he ended up having to leave a little bit early. So, um, but it's still Paul Humphreys. It's still OMD. They're still the greatest. He called me from his hotel room while they were on tour in Detroit. Okay. So let's kick it off. I wanted okay. to talk about this tour. Um, how is it going? Because OMD are historically, I've seen you now three or four times and they've all been since the reunion. And uh, right. th- you guys put on a historically fantastic live show. How was that Thank something? You. I having never seen you back in the early days, it could so easily just be the two of you—one guy on a keyboard and one guy playing a bass—and yet you bring this electricity. 
Was that a plan from the very beginning? How did you decide to do that? Well, we started as a duo basically because uh, all of our friends who were musicians on the World Peninsula thought our music was rubbish, so they didn't <laughs> want to play with us. So we were, we were only a two-piece because we couldn't find any other musicians to play with us, to be honest. Uh, but, uh, but pretty early on, you know, we, we realized that you know, li playing live is, is, is a very important thing. As, as being part of a band. And it's actually one of the things that we love the most is to play live. And so putting on a live show is, is you, you know, putting on the best live show we can put on is what we've always tried to do. And so very early on, we got a drummer in and another keyboard player. And, uh, and you know, Martin joined us quite early because Martin, uh, Martin Cooper was, uh, he, he went to art college in, in uh, we always wanted him in the band but he wanted to finish his, his degree for fine art. So we could only get him in little snippets until he finished his degree course, and then he joined the band permanently. So Martin's been with us from the beginning. Um, and Mal was our original drummer uh, who was with us until, until he had a heart attack on stage in Toronto in 2013. And, uh, and so he's, you know, he's thankfully live and well, but, he's, sure. um, but, but he can't tour anymore. So we've got Stuart Kershaw, who was... In the band briefly in the 90s as well and so so he was kind of part of the omb family anyway so and he's a multi-instrumentalist he can play anything and he's a good drummer so he joined us on drums but yeah so we've always wanted to be you know i i mean i think i think there's always misconceptions about electro bands that that, that were somehow you know we go on stage with lab coats and just twiddle <laughs> buttons and be incredibly boring where but uh, <laughs> But, you know, we're, we're kind of like a rock band. We're like an electro rock band on stage. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, you're there to entertain people, you know. And so, so we do our utmost to put on the best show we possibly could and, and a dynamic show, you know. Yeah, that's it. And I think, um, I think it comes down to three things. Number one, all those songs, all those hits have not aged a day. They're as great and beloved today as they were then. Secondly, I think... The last, the content on the last three albums have been so good and consistent that it doesn't detract from the legacy. It only adds to it. And then third, Andy yeah, is well, a bad man up the, there. Yeah, this is always, he's a total lunatic on stage, which, which, which we love, you know. But yeah, right. I mean, it's nice that you say kind of things about our, our, our three albums. I mean, you know, when we got back together in sort of 2005, because, you know, we took a, took a long break. And when we finally got back together, we said, look, let's um, let's ease our way into it. Let's just see if there's any interest in us still live, because we'd stopped for basically 10 years. And and there was, I mean, there, there was a lot of interest live. But then but then to take the step of making a record, I mean, you know, th there's a reason why Kraftwerk have not made a record in 25 years, <laughs> uh, because they, they don't want to ruin their legacy. You know, Ralph Hutter doesn't want to ruin his legacy, which is fair enough. You know, if he doesn't have anything to say. But, you know, we've always felt that we've still got things to say. Yeah. So we dared to make a new new record, uh, which was um, The History of Modern. And to our surprise, you know, our fans absolutely loved it. We got great reviews. So so we, we decided to, to keep going, making new records, as long as we had good ideas. And then English Electric took us a bit further.
You know, that was a really great album, but we're incredibly proud of Punishment to Luxury, our last one. Yeah. yeah. There's some uh, there's some great stuff on that. And um and, uh, and and you know, our fans our, our fans are our biggest critics, you know, and um they don't mind, you know, filling up our social media with criticisms. You know, they're they're happy to do that. But right. we listen, you know, but but one one of the great one of the great things with with Punishment to Luxury was that it got five reviews from the critics who were always harsh. Uh-huh. And our fans put that album up against our finest records. Really. There's no, so there's that's... no dip. I would totally agree. You guys have always managed to merge the pop songs with this artier side. Obviously, Dazzle Ships. It, it's almost all art, and I'll ask you more about that in a minute. It almost feels like in these three, in the last three albums, specifically Punishment of Luxury, there's a comfort level of merging the two that I don't know if it's that it wasn't there before, but it almost feels defiantly artistic. Like we are going to do what we want to do. We played those pop albums. Yeah. We did. We played the game for a while and now we're going to do what we think we want to do. Yeah, well, that, we have, uh, it, I mean, the industry is completely different now to how it was in the in the 80s. I mean, it, it, it's, it's unrecognizable now. And we had contracts in the 80s whereby we had to deliver an album a year. We, we were a terrible deal with Virgin. So we had to keep making making records. And, you know, Dazzle Ships, as, as, as much as we are proud of that album, nearly killed career. So in order to keep the band running and keep making money and all the people on the payroll needed to get paid, we had to make small commercial records. So in some ways, we kind of abandoned our sort of... uh, There was still good stuff and and, and experimental stuff on the late record. But... But but really, we 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 decided to play a bit safer to keep the bands run, keep the band running really. Mm-hmm. So we kind of backed off on more uh, uh, experimental stuff. But now 
we're in a, we're in a, a wonderful position where you know we don't have to make records again. You know, there's no com- there's no you know commercial pressure or or pressure from record com- contractual pressures. There's none of that. So we we basically got our freedom back, our artistic freedom back. Yeah. And so you, you know we we um, we also started uh, started band by playing some of our early albums in their entirety, and it was really good for us because we did architecture morality in its entirety. And then we did Dazzle Ships as a special one-off at the Royal Albert Hall in London. But in doing those records, we had to kind of go back to the multi-tracks. We had to relearn them. We had to analyze them. And what was really interesting was that, you know, particularly when we did Dazzle Ships, um, putting those tracks together, you know, I said to Andy, it's like, wow, there's like nothing in these songs. They're so simple, yet they they really, really work. And so, uh, we, we kind of went back to our roots with the, with the later albums, you know, uh, I would agree. You know, English electric tradition and, 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 and so we, we kind of went, went all the way back to our sort of more electronic roots and our more experimental roots and, and tried to simplify things again. I mean, it, it, it making music now with the technology you have, it's, um, we call it the tyranny of choice. You know, you, there's so many options now. When we first started, we had very, very limited options because we yeah. had hardly any instruments because we didn't have any money to buy them. Mm-hmm. So we had to make the best of what we had. And, and in that sort of sort of simplistic um, environment that we had where, you know, we could just only make was make music of what we had around us, you concentrated really heavily on the, on the songwriting and trying to make the most of what you've got. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, you, you know, you do it. It is the tyranny of choice you've got. We can, you know, we've got, you know, a million different kinds of synthesizers on our laptops, you know, and Mm -hmm. there's so many possibilities that you can get totally lost in those possibilities. So, Mm -hmm. so we've tried to kind of keep, you know, use the less is more sort of principle and just try to keep it as simple as possible. It's great because it's all in keeping in the OMD style. Like there's no, um, like I said, you can tell that these last few albums are OMD continuously pushing themselves. I want to ask something specific. So I recently, I read a book on Simple Minds recently. It's a great book. And um, right. it was ta- there's a section of it that's talking a lot about yeah, the early days. friends of ours. Yes. I, they're one of my favorite groups ever. And uh, there's a section in the book that talks a lot about their early days of the art- artistically sort of pasting or pastiching words together to make new ideas like empires and dance and and that you guys were sort of influenced similarly with architecture and morality or precision and decay or there's history Mm -hmm. of modern these taking of two words that shouldn't go together but you unite them and suddenly they're they're conjuring a new idea that you had never thought of before was that is that you still do this Simple Minds has abandoned this years ago, but you guys still, still do, do this. this. Yes. Where does that come from? What are you saying? Yeah, what are you communicating like, with that? I mean, the, the thing, when we first started out, we, we um, first of all, just generally with subject matter, um, we were never, I mean, we have written, a, you know, quite a number of love songs over the years, but mainly we write songs about things that are important to us whether it's a political, um, you know, uh, we have political views that we want to get across or, or, or just, you know, we write songs about, you know, romantic songs about old refineries and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, you know, aeroplanes that dropped uh-huh. out, drop atom bombs and, you know, <laughs> and things that fascinate us that, that we, 
that we believe is uh, you, you know should should be should be talked about, and we try to do it in multiple layers as well. So you can just kind of take the fluffy, just like an Ola Gay, you could just take the fluffy tune on top, or if you dig deep, it's a very very you know dark subject, you know, right. and a dark right. lyric. So so we've always kind of had that aspect to us, but yeah, it, it you know there's a lot of. Um, juxtapositions you know you you know we, we look at a couple of different things and try to weigh up the pluses and minuses of things and uh, and it's like architecture morality you know we kind of used it as a as a sort of a metaphor for the way we made music it's like the architecture was was the kind of rigid structures of our songs from the electronics and the morality was 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 the beauty and the emotions and stuff. So beautiful, that makes sense. So that's kind of a perfect example of how we work. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned love songs. It's interesting you say that because yeah. what occurred to me in getting ready to talk to you was that uh, pop pop chart success in the states didn't happen until you started writing and recording obvious love songs, like "So in Love." Yeah. Or, you know, Secrets, I don't know that it's so an overt love, love song, yeah. but it sounds like one, if it you is. leave. It is, yeah. You know what I mean? And prior to that, there were the, yeah, yeah. you would get played on alternative radio with Enola Gay or Tesla Girls or whatever. Oh, yeah. But once you were more Doing overt, yes, <laughs> exactly. Or once you were mo more overt with the messaging yeah. and love is the common universal language suddenly pop chart yeah. was that uh conscious were you aware like if we throw the word love or the ideas I, of I love i think yeah it probably was i mean you know breaking america was 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 very difficult for us i mean basically we were we were we were sold a terrible deal with cbs we were kind of a package deal with cbs that virgin did Mm. And they sold us on to to CBS and as a, with quite a number of bands. And at the time, CBS had Michael Jackson, and we were like this weird electro band from Europe called Orchestra, but it was in the dark. And uh -oh. it's like so they did a contractual release of it, but never put any money into us. And you can't break America without it without a decent budget. <laughs> There's no way you can, particularly yeah. in those days. Anyway. Yeah. So. Um, so it was frustrating because uh, so a lot of those early songs, who knows whether they would have been a hit? I don't know, but we, they certainly never got a chance in in uh, in America. And when we finally prized ourselves off that deal, and because A and M Records really really wanted us for years, and we couldn't get off CBS to join A and M, but we finally managed to do it, and A and M took over. And then at that point, you know. We, we thought we need to give ourselves the biggest possible chance to break America because it's much later 
<laughs> our success mm-hmm. was coming right. in America than, you know, from like 1980, we were huge all over Europe, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think we did consciously tailor. I mean, we we got to, we brought in Stephen Haig, American producer. He's been on um, here to help. We talked with, about you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. The best. So Steve, yeah. we got Steve in, and I mean, we we got to love his stuff through um, his Malcolm McLaren work and mm-hmm. uh, early Pet Shop Boys, you know, uh, mm-hmm. West End Girls and stuff. Sure. And uh, we've always been a we were always a fan of his, and and so we kind of brought him in to kind of give us a more for want of a better phrase, an American sound, mm-hmm. a sound more palatable to the American airwaves. Mm-hmm. And and it probably worked. And so, yeah, we had hits with, um, you know, So In Love and Secret. And then, of course, um, and If You Leave came if along. You leave. So. That's the big one. Um, yeah, one the- thing I was curious about, too, is, yeah, you know, one of the things yeah. that I think maybe cemented your legacy here, too, is that Best Of CD. Because that came out just at a time yes, when most please. people in America are just getting to know you and they know the two or three That's hit songs please. and no CD collection anywhere is complete without that one single disc greatest hits. And suddenly people who weren't yeah. paying attention or weren't aware of everything before, like me, are hearing all of these old classics that are sounding so great and fresh that I mean. That CD has to have sold yeah. millions. Everybody owns that CD. It did. It, yeah. it did sell millions. It was one of the best-selling record. And, yes. uh, and and of course, you know, we had we had Dreaming on there as well, which is another song we put together for the American market. Yes. And that did really, really well as well. But yeah, it really kind of introduced the album, the best, the greatest hits. Really introduced, uh, you know, our our legacy, our our, our whole catalogue of, of of hits around the world to to the American public. And um, really and did. so now, you know, we because it was really only college radio that supported us in those days. You know, throughout all of those hits, Vanilla Gay, Souvenir, Joan of Arc, and mm-hmm. all of those, it was really, um, we get played to death on college radio. So, so you know, some people would know them and electricity as well. Right. But um, people would kind of know them from college radio, but but we never hit the commercial markets with them. Mm-hmm. Um, with those songs so so yeah you're right it, like the best of album was a great way to introduce those songs to the to the american masses you know that was really it and uh so i wanted to go back back to the beginning for a minute because if i remember correctly from other interviews you guys have done um i think electricity is the first thing you two ever did together is that right
Yeah, basically, it was the first actual song we wrote. Okay. Everything else before electricity was just us experimenting with sound and okay. noise and uh, and crazy instruments that I used to build. You know, uh-huh. uh, I mean, the th- the thing was when we started out, we um, you know, Andy and I, I was fifteen, Andy was sixteen, and um, we kind of we discovered craftwork, and and as like sort of middle teens, you know. We idolized Kraftwerk, so we kind of wanted to be Kraftwerk. Mm-hmm. But but the interesting thing was was that they had this most incredible amounts of technology, and we were two working class boys from Liverpool with absolutely no money. Mm-hmm. So you know, I had to. I, my hobby was electronics from being twelve. I used to build stuff, mm-hmm. so I kind of built all these weird and wonderful machines that made noise. And then we just pick up instruments from secondhand stores, like you know, uh, like, uh, old Jaguar organs and electric pianos that were kind of a bit broken. But I used to manage to fix them, and and uh, so it was like it it, it, it was like j- junk craft work, really. Yeah, you know? yeah, yes. Because <laughs> we were just playing junk, really. Yeah, isn't <laughs> and, it interesting uh, to think? But the that... interesting thing was, it, but, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm no, sorry. I was just, just going to say. Yeah, yeah, no, I was just going to say that, um, but what's important about that is that um, I think if we did had access to all of the machines that Kraftwerk had access to, we would have sounded like a carbon copy of Kraftwerk, and, and who needs that, you know? Mm-hmm. I think all our junk kind of made us, uh, you know, we had, to, we had to go in a different direction. We had to sound different. And that was where we created the OMD sound that was different to Kraftwerk, inspired by them. You know, we took their ideals. We took it as a blueprint in many ways. You know, their their kind of sense of melody. They would have these crazy backing tracks, but the keyboard line would would sell the song. You know, and so we kind of took that as our mantra from them. But in terms of sonics and the way we sounded, we had to sound completely different to Kraftwerk. But that forged us in a in a path. You know, that's that was different. Absolutely, to Kraftwerk, which is which is set us aside, which was a good thing. Isn't it interesting to think that what Kraftwerk was for you, to you, you are to other bands? I mean, you speak so lovingly about, yeah. I mean, Kraftwerk were yeah. your Beatles or your Velvet Underground or whatever. And Thank you God. are that to hundreds of other bands now. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I know. It is, it is flattering when you hear, you know, even some of our contemporaries talking about us, you know, and, you know, uh, you know, bands like The Killers speak very fondly of us, even Radiohead. Because yes. of us and uh, other bands, and it's incredibly flattering. Yeah, know? it is. And, and you know, we tell we tell a story. We tell a story on stage actually um, about because we we play almost which side of electricity. Oh, 
And um, and we, we got friendly with Vince Clark. Uh, you know, he's a good mate now. And we didn't know him in the early days, but we were friendly with him. And he said, um, you'll never guess what happened with me. He said, I heard almost, which was the B-side electricity. And he said, I, I loved it so much. I went out and bought a synth. And then when I bought a synth, I learned how to play almost. And then I put Depeche Mode together. <laughs> no so, way. Yeah. I mean, all these wow. little... Yeah, I know. It's amazing. We never knew this until... until um, I, 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 before we put OMD back together again, I had a band with Claudia Brooken uh, from Propaganda. One, two. Um, so and good. we toured. Yeah, one, two. Oh, thank you. When we toured Eurasia, you know, and and I remember that this is how I know this story because um, you know Vince is really quite shy, and I had I didn't really know him before then. And there was a knock on our dressing room door, and it was Vince, and he said, "Can I interview you for my podcast?" He said, "Really?" I said, "Sure, sure." And then so I went to the dressing room, and and he said, "Look, I, I have to tell you the story," and he told it on his podcast. You oh, know hey. how, how he'd heard almost, and then he bought a thing. So yeah, yeah that brilliant. is wild. So we ne- we were totally unaware of these things, yeah. you know. Yeah, good for you. You deserve yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, we all have we all influence each other, but yeah. we we all influence each other. You know, yeah. you just have to be switched on, you know, and do other things going on, and you you'll pull influences. I mean, it's true. We now pull influences from everywhere. Yeah, when I was uh, getting ready to talk to you, I I remembered that prior to OMD. I think your first band was the id and I had, but I had never listened to the id before. And I pull up Julia's song on, uh, on YouTube and it's got like this psychedelic, almost Hammond organ sound. It sounds like the crazy life of Arthur Brown or something like that, you know?
And I wondered Absolutely. if that song precedes song electricity. Well, it, it's a great uh, song, and no, I think it's on the second album, right? right? Sorry, go ahead. It's actually on the first album. Well, okay. actually, in America, it came out that the, the order of things came out differently. So that's what I thought. So perhaps it was the second in America, but but in the in Europe, it was on the first album. And yeah, I mean, see, Andy and I, we 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 wrote the songs for the, for the Id as well, and so we kind of carried what what we thought was our better songs for the Id into OMD when when we uh-huh. stopped the Id. You know, but the Id was kind of like a prog rock band. And, really um, interesting thing ha- happened the, interesting thing happened the other day we were also in a band called hitler's underpants right <laughs> <laughs> and yeah we used to proudly say we've been in hitler's underpants and, uh, <laughs> but uh, it was just like these crazy people doing mad things on stage and uh and so it needed an e- equally mad name but uh, when we played um brooklyn steel the other night and the the guy, there was a guy who came to the show who I hadn't seen since he was in Hitler's underpants. Oh, no, really? And he came to the show. I hadn't seen him for four to five years. Yeah. And wow. he came to the show and it was just great to see him because he was he, he was kind of instrumental in helping us in the early days because we did the one-off Hitler's underpants gig. But he had a really great Roland synthesizer. He was probably the only person in the whole area on the Wirral Peninsula where we <laughs> had a synthesizer. So uh, we used to go borrow his synth, you know, and him crazily, and he didn't really know us very well, but he would let us have this really expensive synth to go and do a gig and we'd deliver yeah. it back the next day. You know? oh, no so way. we used to book our shows around this guy's synthesizer <laughs> availability. <laughs> You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and we saw it for the first time few, like last week in uh, Brooklyn so it was great that yeah. is crazy come around. right on so what uh, yeah. I mean I've always been curious most bands don't especially do it like you know look at Tears for Fears they had to call it quits for a long time too and do kind of a similar trajectory as you guys what was what brought on the the cut you know the break ultimately it was yeah it was it was a lot of things really we got to the kind of we got to the end of the 80s mm-hmm. and uh, we'd sold you know millions and millions and millions and millions of records and we got to the end of the 80s and we still owed virgin a million pounds oh. and it was like how could this be you know yeah. basically we were we were on this deal whereby you know we 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 were ending up having to borrow more than we were earning because we were on such a small percentage that even though we're selling lots of records, we, we wasn't generating enough money to pay back the loans that we were taking for the record company to pay for the next record. And because, you know, you had to pay for your own recordings, your own videos, your own tours. You had to pay for all the bands and the commission to the management. And, you know, the, the, the costs were endless. Mm-hmm. And, so, um, and so the pressure of that really became too much. So we kind of stopped for a bit. And then Andy decided he wanted to continue and I didn't want to continue. So... Mm-hmm. So Andy continued into the '90s uh, with Stuart Kershaw, who's now a yeah. drummer. Yeah, and then he did, he did three albums, and then and then packed it in, and then so we then the band basically stopped for ten years, and uh, and then we all got back together in 2005. Yeah. I wanted to ask you specifically about Listening Pool because that Still Life album is wonderful. Oil for the Lamps of China, I love oh. that album. Somewhere to call your own You need some time to be alone 
Is there any, but it's, it's great, but it's obscure. It's really hard to find. Um, is there any, any momentum or any interest in re-releasing that or putting it out on in a physical format again? I might put it out at some point. I I might, yeah, I've still got all the masters for it. So I might do that at some point. I mean, the reason for that, uh, for that, that, that release wasn't to have a, a new career with a new band. Oh, it was basically we started. Um, we started a record label to help Liverpool bands out, and and I signed China Crisis, and I signed uh, Pete Coyle from the Lotus Eaters, and yeah. it was basically to, get, to give a platform to a lot of Liverpool artists to release records. But we thought to launch it, let's just kind of use on and to get all the deals to yeah. release all these records. Let's let's release our own record and use our names. To, to kind of uh, to get some deals in place to give the labels some credibility so that we could sign all these bands and, and have a network of, of being able to release, you know. So that was the idea behind it. I had no idea. I assumed what you just said. There was animosity, Andy's doing OMD. You're like, I'll show him, I'll start the listening pool. We'll have to compete oh, with one no, another, no. but that's not what was going on. That's not uh, what was going on. No, we, we just used it as a platform to launch our label. Okay. And now I the label was owned by Mark Martin from the. Yeah. Okay. One of my favorite OMD songs is actually on the third OMD, on the third album of Just Andy's, um, Very Close to Far Away. It's on Universal. And I didn't realize until getting ready to talk to you, I believe you had a hand in writing that song or co-writing yeah, yeah. that song with him, right? How were you guys working um, together well, at that know, point? When, when we split up, we we didn't. You know, well, uh, Andy went to work in LA for a bit, bit, and and I was living in LA at the time, oh, so we kind of got realize. together, and you know, okay. I did a little bit of contributing, I did a little bit of contributing. We I went over to his house, and we did a little bit of writing, 
but uh, but nothing too too big really you know because uh yeah andy was working with stuart kershaw at the time as, as his co-writer as well so and um so but yeah there was you know we put our animosity to bed i mean it was a bit acrimonious when we it wasn't when we first split up actually mm. but then when the lawyers got involved it got a little acrimonious mm. <laughs> but uh but but we kind of we realized later that there was a lot of people trying to drive a wedge between us it wasn't ourselves driving the wedge between us I mean and mm. it was other other more divisive people yeah so um so we soon kind of put that to bed and because you know Andy and I we, we've known each other since we were seven years old you know that gosh. primary school seven oh years my old gosh. so so we go back a long way and yeah. um and so you know a lot of um a lot, lot of love between okay. us you know good so um we're like I'm brothers so glad. we can fight glad. like brothers sure i'm glad to hear this because it clears up i think some misconceptions about why any partnership dissolves you only really hear the horror stories of people who just can't stand one another anymore and so when yeah no when that's separation really happens that's not the story that. here that's so good to hear no no Okay. No, no. We, you know, we're we're a very happy family, and Good. and 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 this um, this sort of reincarnation of of OMD has been going on longer than the first. Good <laughs> point. You're right. <laughs> you know, You're and, right. Uh, um, and we're loving every minute. And, and the, the good thing is, to be honest, I mean, we, we don't have to, we don't, this is not what we have to do. You know, we're right. not doing it because we need the money. We're doing it because we love doing it. You know, yeah. we love being together. We love hanging out. We love making records. We love touring. You know, we love getting on stage together. You yeah. know, we all get along great. It's like a big family. You know, I'm we, so glad. We really, have, we really have so much fun, you know. And, and you know, there's nothing worse than seeing bands who are who are just doing it because they need a paycheck, and you can tell on stage that they really hate each other. Yeah, you, yeah. I can see it a mile off. Yeah. Oh, but people do comment that how happy we look on stage. It's because we're having fun. We, right. we like each other. We like playing with each other. You know, we, we you know we we really enjoy being a band unit on stage. That's great. That's great. So we try to cover some of the business side on on here very sensitively and you just mentioned not needing the money i'm curious if if you leave could you just live off of if you leave money at the, forever at this point it makes uh it's it's our biggest earner yeah provides a nice living yeah, yeah i thought so because yeah. because you know it's not about radio play anymore i mean that song gets gets synchronized for television ads all the time it gets synchronized you know commercials and films it's like i don't know how many synchronizations it gets a year you know being attached to something a tv show mm -hmm. but it there's many a year and and you know that's that's kind of where the money is there's no money in record sales anymore or spotify you know there's hardly any money in spotify right so um so that's that kind of generates the money really i thought but so. i mean i mean these days uh, these days though we make more money from touring than anything else yeah 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 so why not do it okay you've talked you've told the if you leave story millions of times i'm not going to ask you to recount it i remember that it was basically done in 24 hours one thing i was curious well, about though about that is Lisa. yes well what a what a burst of inspiration <laughs> that turned out to be do you know yeah, if we were looking. yes do you know if a call had gone out to several other bands 
saying we need a song in 24 hours and whoever was it whoever provides the best song in that short time frame that's the one we take or was it all on you well as far as we know it was all on us but you you know with big film companies like paramount pictures they could have been covering their asses so they could have put it out to other people without us ever knowing you know but uh, but as far as our, our sort of conversations with John Hughes was that he needed us to write the song and he, and he needed it like tomorrow. Uh, right. <laughs> so, um, right. so yeah, it was a frightening thing. I mean, we just got really lucky, to be honest, because nine times out of ten, when you're under that kind of pressure, you write a piece of crap, really. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were just fortunate that we wrote something that was, we just had a burst of inspiration that, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll thank that burst of inspiration. Forever, yeah. you know? Absolutely. Um, I want to, speaking of bursts of inspiration, there are moments in so many OMD songs that I just think who in the world thought of this, for instance, the song new Holy ground, hmm. which, um, I believe you guys, I don't know if you're playing it on this tour, but I've heard you play it in other tours. There's no time for theory. There's no time for tears And there's no point in trying We wasted all these years And there's no way of knowing If this pain will ever fade There is no This is what we made Take a look at yourself And walk to the edge And take a deep breath And be someone else Take a look at yourself And see what is found Step into the light Onto new holy ground There's no hope there are there is the sound okay there's the sound of constantly clacking like high heels on a marble floor or something like that who thought of that i mean the thing is we we've we're we're always kind of switched on well it's it's a sonic thing it sounded great you know we're, we're always like going through sound effects libraries and things like that because you know it's it's our kind of music concrete sort of heritage. You know we like to kind of yeah. incorporate anything that makes a sound into our music. You know, so so if the sound is good, we'll we'll write a song around. I mean we've done it before with a song called The Avenue, where it's just a train track going going over the the connections of you know, and that was the whole rhythm track.
So, you know, we're always kind of got our ears to the ground listening for, for you know, trawling through sample reels of things to, to look for interesting sounds to incorporate or to inspire, you know. Okay. Fascinating. Um, what is it with you guys and Joan of Arc? Why do you have three songs about Joan of Arc? Well, it's kind of two, really, but... But isn't La Femme um, Accident but, basically about Joan of Arc too? Well, people do think that, but it was actually about a, about one of Andy's ex-girlfriends. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I'm okay. explain that. But, uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, people do think that's the third one. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a good point. But no, there was two. Basically, um, this was kind of Andy's brainchild, and because uh, he, we toured, we toured, we did um, a French tour, and the support band whose name uh, escapes me at the moment, um, we were playing all these cities, and and the, the support band said. You, you know, this is like the Joan of Arc tour because we were going through, we were linking all these cities that were known for Joan of Arc. You know, and um, so, and Andy kind of logged that and uh, and went to the, went to the library and looked, read more and more about Joan of Arc, and it became he became a bit obsessed. So he said, "I'm really need to write a song about Joan of Arc." So he he started uh, doing the Maid of Orleans.
um, I kind of reorganized some of the chord changes for him and stuff. And but he didn't really like like it, so he said, oh. "I'm going to write another one. This one's not working." That was the made made of all the on uh, right. the 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 three time one to, 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 to that one. Yes. And so he went away and wrote the other one, and then a song about Joan of Arc. And then when we were preparing for um, for the uh, to, to go to record Architecture Morality, we were sort of preparing all the tracks to go because we were moving from our own studio to the Manor Studios to record. And um, I think it was actually Martin said, mm. we were listening through what we've got. And Martin said, well, where's that other one? Where's that one that goes? Dum, 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 uh -huh. And Andy uh -huh. said, oh, it doesn't really work. He said, can we just listen to it for a minute? <laughs> we put it up and we all went, what? It's great. You know? It is <laughs> great. Using it. So then we were stuck with two Joan of uh, we had we had stuck with two songs about Joan of Arc, but uh, I mean Andy wanted to keep keep both call them both Joan of Arc exactly uh -huh. at the same time. Speaking of working with producers, my understanding is that like, we talked about Stephen Haig coming in. And again, I mean, that guy defined yeah. the sound of the 80s in so many ways, especially with artists like yourselves. Um, when he came in and did yeah. Cru Crush, my understanding was that you guys weren't 100% happy yeah. with the direction. Maybe it felt a little too poppy or a little too glossy or something. But then you had him again on Pacific Age. Why do that? Yeah. Well, we did because, um, I mean, I think ultimately we think Crush will work. We, we may have struggled a bit. I mean, I, I love Steve, you know, but he is a bit of a control freak and, ah. and so were we. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so there was a kind of a clash a little yeah. bit, you know, and, um, you know, we wanted certain things our way. He wanted them his way and we had to compromise, but we thought, well, let's try it again. And, uh, but but the Pacific Age, you know, we we clashed a lot on the Pacific Age, mm. I think, and um, particularly Andy and Steve clashed a lot. Mm. And and I used to get annoyed because I would play a really cool line, and then I come in the next day and Steve changed it. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, you know, obviously he's a great producer and he has a vision, but sometimes the visions aren't the same, you know. Yeah, yeah, that makes and sense. That's where we clashed. So we stopped working with him after that. Okay. Um, I want to throw, we have Patreon supporters and I tell them who I'm interviewing and if they want to submit questions, they can. You got a lot of, of responses. 
So uh, several people okay. actually just said, I don't have a question, but tell him how much I love him. So there's that as oh, well. <laughs> yes. So there were a few things in here that I wanted to bring up. One of which Matthew Quinlan wants to know, and I kind of yeah. had this too. Are you, sh- are you surprised that Dazzle Ships has become re uh, reassessed so well after the fact? What was a commercial yeah. torpedo at the time? I think of it almost like Lou Reed's metal machine music or something like that. Suddenly it takes on it. People find the art in it and the beauty in it. And it takes on a new life. Would you have ever guessed? I know. I mean, when it first came out, I mean, it confused the hell out of people because people were expecting Architecture Morality Number no. 2. And then Dazzle Ships come out with this kind of weird experimental sort of angular, sort of stripped down, not so musical um, album, As particularly if you compare it to Architecture Morality. And it just confused the hell out of everyone. It confused the hell out of the lyrics. I, I mean, out of the critics. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the lyrics were kind of very much about the Cold War and it was quite a dark record and, and it would just confuse people. So it got terrible reviews. It didn't sell well because people were just expecting Architecture Morality number two. But over the years, it has been sort of reassessed. I mean, probably even by ourselves, we've reassessed really? it because, you know, we kind of it kind of hurt our career quite a bit. So, you know, it was like, it's like we got punched in the face by this record. So we didn't really like it for punching mm-hmm. us in the face, but even though we created it, you know, mm-hmm. but, but as, as time goes on, we kept looking back on it going, yeah, actually, but that was a really groundbreaking record. You know, mm-hmm. it was really, and and we were incredible looking back. We were incredibly brave to try something like that. You were. Because, um, cause I, I'm, I mean, uh, p- part of the problem as well was that uh, our record, we never liked to keep repeating the same things. And someone at our record company after Architecture Melody um, was such a big success said to us, you just have to make Architecture Melody number two and you're the next Genesis. And we thought, oh. shit, we don't want that. Let's not make Architecture Melody number two. <laughs> so, so, you know, we were kind of influenced by other people. <laughs> uh, so, um, so yeah, so we got okay. brave and did that. But yes, it, it is amazing. It's now now known as our fractured masterpiece, it's now known it as. But at the time, it was just this weird, quirky record that yeah. no one could understand. Yeah, that's it. It's like I said, it's been reassessed, and now you know uh, you can perform it in full live and draw a huge audience that want to hear that exact thing. Who would have guessed? I know we sold out the Royal Albert Hall. Who wanted to just hear that record live? It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, 
he also wanted to know how who, this album that was such a disaster when it was released. Exactly. Um, okay, another question: How do you decide when you're going to take lead on a song? Souvenir, forever live and die, secrets. Those are yours. Who decides that? Certainly on, um, certainly, I mean, like Souvenir, Andy was on, and, and I'd got uh, Dave Hughes, who was from the band Dalek, I Love You, came around to my studio, and uh, he'd been recording choirs in the studio, and he said, look, if you can make choir loops, I was really good with tape machines, and he said, if you can make loops out of these single note choirs, you can have a copy and, uh, and do what you want with them. So I made up the loops for him, kept a copy, and that very night after I did it, I started just playing around, I just started these choral chords and then did put a click track down and did a drum track and the melody came really quick. And because and Andy was away, I thought, I'm just going to put a guide vocal down. So a guide vocal came to me. I just put one down on the tape for him to come in the next day, maybe sing, you know, or when he got back from, from holiday to sing. came in and said, no, you sound great on this. Why don't we just leave your voice? But I intended it for him to sing it, you know. Mm. So, uh, and the same happened with Forever Live and Die. He wasn't around. And so I just, I got impatient and wanted to just kind of get a vocal down onto the tape. Yeah. Just, just to document the tune and the lyric idea, you know. Uh-huh. But uh, we ended up just leaving my voice up there. Are you comfortable singing? No, I'm a reluctant singer, really. Yeah, really? I'd much rather Andy sing. Hmm. Yeah, but uh, but you know, I, I, it, it's fun sometimes, and it what is it kind of breaks up the show a little bit. It gives Andy yeah. a rest in our live show as well. Sure, he gets a break, and yeah. um, and 
so yeah so uh, okay. i reluctantly sing these songs <laughs> i mean so the songs i'm really proud of but i just don't you like should be being a lead yes well your voice it it's so sweet and soft it adds a an extra layer of depth to the band as a whole and what you're able to do so i'm so dimension, isn't it? yeah 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 it, it, it adds another sort of sonic dimension to the band so he mentions uh this is also matthew quinlan again how do you feel about performing you we de we decided that there was i've learned that there was no animosity so do you have any qualms about performing like sailing on the seven seas or anything like that live today not at all it's a really great song okay and you know stuart's in the band now as well and he co-wrote it and True. so i'm very happy Anything that anything that's been done on the on under the OMD umbrella and and ha has the OMD name attached to it, it doesn't matter who wrote it or when it was done. Really, mm -hmm. it, we just we just play it on merit, and it's a very good song. You know, good. So, yeah, everything we put in the set is played on merit. It doesn't matter who wrote it or you know. We just good. try to put a, a, a show together of of what people we feel people would like to hear and and you know with every country we go to we tailor because we've had hits in different countries as well so mm. you know we tailor our shows to to the to the market where we're in you know mm -hmm. so, i mean we don't often play dreaming and secret and in, uh, in europe because they weren't hits but no one really knows oh, them, yeah good point apart from the hardcore so. yeah okay that makes sense. Okay. Um, yeah. Philip Hopwood. And even if you leave, sometimes we don't play if you leave. Yeah. Really? In certain yeah. places, that yeah, song doesn't sorry. matter? Yeah. In the whole of Europe, it's, it, was not, it wasn't a hit. It was only a hit in America and Canada and South America. So, uh, so, so sometimes we leave it out and no one really notices it's gone. You know? <laughs> That's wild. That is wild. Okay. <laughs> Philip Hopwood wants to know, um, he was at, he asked a question about one, two, uh, right. let's see a, this happened concert had Paul play a big role. Yeah. Uh, would you be, uh, would be interested in hearing recollections of that concert, a who's who of eighties, new wave electronica played that night. I guess he was there. Yeah. Does this ring a bell? Yeah. I guess he was there. Oh yeah. Yeah. We did. Um, it, it, we put we put together this uh, concert um, at the Scala uh, venue in London, 
and um, it was to be filmed. It was to basically celebrate Claudia's career. And uh, so we did a lot of propaganda stuff. We did a lot of one, two. I played in the band, but, you know, we got Glenn Gregory from Heaven 17 to guest. Right. Um, and we got, yeah, we got a whole host of guests, you know, to, to play with us. And, uh, and it was just a great night, you know. And I was talking to Claudia recently, and uh, she, she wants to re-release it. Oh, good. Uh, to properly re-release this happened. Good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you Andy too. Bell was Andy Bell. Oh, nice. Uh, uh, sung with us as well. Good. So, I mean, it was a really, uh, it was a really great lineup. You and Claudia were together for a while, but you're not anymore. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. We were together for about sixteen years. That's what I thought. And okay. um, uh, we broke up in thirteen. Okay. Um, in 2013, but we we still we still see each other. We still, you know, I was speaking. I was texting with her yesterday. Okay. Oh, uh, propaganda, ex propaganda, a new band. I've yep. just released. Um, uh, she put propaganda together, but she's not allowed to use the name. So she's ex propaganda, and so she's um, she's teamed up with Steve Lipson, uh, yep. who's a fantastic producer, and uh, and they've got a new album out. She released a new single, and so um, I texted yep. her yesterday because I just heard it and said oh, I really like it. It's a great single. Steve and I have been emailing. He's going to hopefully come on the show too. And Claudia emailed me once about a year and a half ago and said that she would come on when she had new music to talk about. Okay, one one little thing. Do you guys realize that you put the term heaven knows in a few of your songs? I counted at least three. Isn't that interesting? Really? If you leave, have it as a heaven yeah, knows. Heaven Tesla knows. Girls has a heaven knows, and uh, yeah, 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 true. There's one other on junk culture, and I'm blanking on the name, but yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness, you're right. You're yeah. right. Oh my goodness, I, you know, I've never even made that connection. We probably repeat ourselves a whole lot more than than you're pointing out, <laughs> but it, you know, it's yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Uh, but I mean, you end up getting, in, in some ways, in your song writing you're getting influenced by yourself more than anyone else as, as you go on in your career uh -huh. you know I, I think our biggest influences now is ourselves in the early days and you'll probably subconsciously pick things maybe it's lyrics like heaven knows or uh, <laughs> or um you, you know little phrases you know you just i don't know it's funny yeah. it's well pointed out it just <laughs> hit me the other day i, I listened to junk that. culture again for the first time in a while and i noticed it in Tesla Girls, and then again in oh. one of the other songs later on. I can't remember what, but anyway. Um, well, look, Paul, I... It's a good phrase. It is, of course. Yeah. Nothing wrong with heaven. heaven um, Paul, yeah. I love you so much. Thank you for all the good you've put in the world. You've made the world a better place, and you've enriched many of our lives thank so you. fully that we wouldn't be the same without you. So thank you for everything you've done. You're very kind. Yes. It's very kind to say such nice things. All right, there you have it. Paul Humphreys from OMD, one of the greatest groups ever, ever. And I know I saw a lot of your pictures, so I know a lot of you saw them on the recent U.S. tour. Weren't they fantastic? They're now on tour in Europe, and that'll be carrying on for the next few months. So if you have not seen them or you've seen them and it's been a while or you love them as much as I do, go do it and tell me all about it because they really are so satisfying live. 
Now, next up is noted singer-songwriter Mary Fall. Mary was the lead singer of this kind of really unique, interesting band in the 90s called October Project. They only ever put out two albums. Uh, the first album, self-titled from 93, featured this song right here, Bury My Lovely, which I love this song. A couple other tracks off of it got some airplay, uh, Return to Me, Ariel. They were, uh, but there wasn't really anything else out there that quite that sounded quite like this. Kind of chamber pop music, very orchestrated. Mary's voice is very husky and powerful. Well, the band broke up, and she eventually went solo. And she's been putting out solo albums since the early 2000s. She has a brand new one that's all covers, much like we had Margot on here recently from the Cowboy Junkies. These guys, Mary, has put out an excellent new. Uh, covers album that's due this friday the 22nd called can't get you out of my head which is a not nod to that elo song which she covers on here so we get into i i don't know why but i always just find it so fascinating what motivates people to do covers what is the philosophy there do you think you can improve it you just really love the song have can you make it your own what what motivates you what makes you decide to do these particular songs as covers so we get into the whole history of this album, which is really all these songs. There's songs from ELO, there's George Harrison, there's Nick Drake, there's the Moody Blues, there's Pink Floyd. Now, what's one thing that's really interesting also about Mary is she put out an album a couple of years ago that is a song-for-song -song cover of the Dark Side of the Moon album. So she, this woman with this orchestrated husky voice, is a huge Pink Floyd fan. So we talk all about Pink Floyd, the music she grew up on, all that kind of stuff. What happened with October Project. She has a really beautiful song that became sort of an anthem after 9-11 called Dawning of the Day. And we hear the story about that in here as well. Her albums have won, won all these awards for like surround sound and sound quality. Bob Claremountain worked on them. Anyway, fascinating stuff. I have always really, really loved Mary and found her so interesting that I wanted to hear her story, and I'm glad I get to share it with you guys. Again, this Friday, the new album comes out. She called me from her home in, I don't remember, New York, maybe? I don't remember anymore. Sorry, Mary. Let me kick this off. Here's where I became aware of Mary Fall. So I grew up Mormon, and uh, in, the, in March of 1994, I get home from my two-year Mormon mission. You've seen those Mor the Mormon missionaries out there. And uh, during those two years, you're not allowed to listen to pop music at all. And yeah, no music, no movies, no dating, no newspapers, no nothing. It's just constant, you know, religious stuff. Anyway, uh, that fall, I'm starting summer or I'm starting college in Provo, Utah. And I move out to Provo about a month early and I get a job in a CD store called Pegasus. And mm -hmm. as they do back then, this would have been 1994, there's, you know, the different clerks or people who work there put on their favorite CDs to listen to in the store. And uh, October Project, the first album, got a lot of play. And I would always remember hearing Bury My Lovely and everything else, but just being knocked out by this because I had not heard, I'd not heard anything for two years. And here was this really amazing thing. Yeah. And I bought my own copy and I just have it. Every time I listen to every time I hear your voice specifically, I'm just reminded of those beautiful days of discovering all this great music that I couldn't listen to for two years. It reminds me of 
staying up all night studying in my apartment with my roommate Sean and listening to the Barry my or listening to the October Project on a loop, and yeah. uh, all of that. It just takes me right back to that 1994 moment that was so great. I have a lot of questions about that, but before we get there, I want to ask you how you discovered your voice, because a voice as powerful and husky as yours, I feel like people don't just stumble on a voice. They have to go looking for a voice like that. How did you find yours? So I always sang, even when I was, my mother says I could sing before I could talk, but I didn't know I was a good singer. But what I was lucky with was that I grew up in a large family. I had siblings that were much older than me, much older. And so they were teenagers when I was a very little girl. And so they all had their own taste in music and good taste. So my brother, my oldest brother was the folky, Mary Travers, Judy Collins, uh, Tom Paxton, all of those. That Tom Paxton Ramblin' Boy record, mm. I mainlined that basically. <laughs> as a kid. I, 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 it's just part of me. It's part of my DNA. Yeah. And, and then there was my sister with the great singers of the 60s, one of whom was certainly Petula Clark. And go. I listened as a little kid over it. I used to, I won singing contests singing Petula Clark songs. And mm -hmm. so, and she was such a great pop singer. She nailed it every time. And, and people like, I, I, and then my brother was the Pink Floyd guy, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the Prague and all that. And, and so I had all that coming in. And then I also liked, um, I like, you know, as a little kid, I like Broadway stuff. Sure. Um, so I, I would sing along with those records too, and especially, interestingly enough, that the cast album with Mary Martin of South Pacific as a little kid, my parents had that record and I loved that. And I sang with all the men too. Oh, really? So I sang with Ezio Penza and, and that, lo that lovely guy that sang um, Younger Than Springtime. And so I had Mary Martin and Ezio and, all of them, I sang that stuff every single day and it developed my voice. I do it over. And so the reason I, I have almost a tenor's voice in many ways is I, I think because of that. And 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 then, I, you know, um, I went on later as I developed my own taste in music. I was very, very influenced by British folk singers like oh. Andy Denny, yeah. June Tabor and Linda Thompson. Those three, especially there were others as well, but, and so, because I felt like I, I sounded like them mm -hmm. and there was a sensibility that we shared mm -hmm. a haunting quality. Yeah. They were yeah. great interpreters of songs. And so that was a really big influence on me. Um, Judy Collins was a huge influence, um, mm -hmm. her eclecticism, you know? Um, so I, I think if you put all that in a soup, yeah. that's where I come from. That's that makes the sense. Yeah. I spoke with, uh, I interviewed Margot Timmons from the Cowboy Junkies recently. Oh, she was yeah. on here. And she was very much a sort of a, almost a reluctant rock star. She did not grow up necessarily wanting to sing or expecting to sing or being a front woman or anything. She just, it just sort of happened. Mm -hmm. And she's got a beautiful smoky voice, yeah. but yours just feels so, so operatic almost and so powerful. And I just think, yeah. Mary Fall doesn't just stumble into singing one day. That takes, you have to explore yourself to find your own, like, I don't know, your own boundaries, your own capabilities as a singer to get as big and, and grand as you can be. Well, the other thing that was nice about my first really big professional experience being with October Project is that 
um, when we first got together, it was really, you know, the, the kernel, the core of it was Emil and Julie. Um, I met Julie through a friend and she brought me out to his studio and he played for me those, those first songs, those October Project songs. And it was as if I already knew them. And there was a, a soaring passion yeah. to those songs that matched my vocal and yeah. what matched the way I wanted to sing yeah. so much of, even in the, the nineties, even women's voices began to change and there began yes. to be a sort of breathy quality and under singing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't sing like that. And, mm-hmm. but those, those soaring melodies and, and, and the passion mm-hmm. of Judy, of, of Julie's lyrics, you know, sort of this is sort of immense light and dark and, and it was Promethean kind of, um, I loved it. It was, it was, there was a, there was a sort of mythological quality to it. And, I and I just, it matched my, my, my sort of inner being. And, yeah. and, and I was able then through that to express, you know, all of that, you know, uh, the, the passion and um, I don't, you know, I, I don't like girls who undersing with breathy voices. It gets on my nerves after a okay. while. And okay. so, you know, and again, as I got older, I, I've always loved a, a deeper, darker voice. I loved Anita Baker and Sarah Vaughn and, and people Anita's like that. It's favorite. sort of like a red wine. Yeah. You know? I, I, I don't like a, you know, a light Chablis. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's an analogy. I wonder, okay, so I'm curious about this then, Mary, because I feel like I feel like, how do I put this? I wonder if the world has found, whether that be a label or you or your fans or whatever, found the perfect place to put your talent. Because it well, feels like, because I mean, maybe you can understand what I'm saying. Like, you have that great Pink Floyd covers album of Dark Side of the Moon. This covers album, I'm going to ask about specific songs here in a second. You talk about your rock upbringing, your prog upbringing, your folk upbringing, the everything, the Judy Collins. Even your own, the October Project is this chamber, chamber pop sort of orchestrated yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Your first solo album is kind of similar, but there's lots of songs in other languages and soundtrack work. There's all this stuff and it's a little bit of everything. And I wonder, have we found the best place for Mary Fall where she can be her best self? Well, I I am very eclectic. There's no getting okay. around that. And so you're happy with this. You're okay with this. Well, I, I on one hand, I, I love expressing myself. And, yeah. and if I if I love something, if I fall in love with, whereas in the modern music business, you know, Judy Collins got away with that, you know, um, but in the modern music business, they sort of like to funnel you into a particular category. Mm-hmm. And I will admit, nobody's ever known what to do with me. And, and it's partially, I take responsibility for that. You know, um, I'm not like blaming the record industry. Sure. Um, I've, I flitter out. I mean, certainly October Project was a very good vehicle for me. But after that, after we disbanded, that version of October Project disbanded, I, I was hungry to branch out and do more things. When I started to learn to write and I worked with really good people and it took me a while. It was very frightening. You know, the bar had been set extremely high mm-hmm. and, and to try something and you have to be bad at it first. And then finally I got the hang of it. I got to be better and better. And when I found, when I had a little uh, group of songs that I felt were really good, I started shot. I made CDs. I was went back to a day job. I started putting all my money into CDs and things like that. And, Lo and behold, after a many series of events, 
I got signed on the spot to Sony Classical that I would never have predicted that in a million years. And they didn't really know what to do with me either, but they were like, well, you're very cinematic. So we'd like you to write for movies, which I did. I wrote for Gods and Generals and that was really fun. And, and then, uh, and I like having a subject to write for, you know, um, um, I don't like just pick a song out of thin air one morning that happens once in a while, but I like to have a mission, you know, and then, um, but they insisted that a, I sing with an orchestra and B that I had to do some classical music. And when I auditioned, they said, could you sing an aria for us? And I said, Ooh, Ooh, you know, I'm not Renee Fleming. I'm not trained. I'm not an opera singer. I'm kind of a folk singer. And they said, yes, we know, but we'd like you to do it anyway. So I happen to know Ness and Dorma because I, you know, I, I like, like I said, I like singing along with tenors and I knew it. And I sang it for them, and they told me later that was what what closed the deal for really? them. Really? Yes. And so they insisted I sing uh, a Donizetti aria. Uh-huh. But the problem was, and you know, there there are songs on that record that I I just love it, especially the things that I wrote that we we got to sing with an orchestra. Um, uh-huh. That is a feeling like no, I, I was I, I was in heaven that day. Uh-huh. I'll, it'll, I'll never be the same. Yeah. And um, that was a song called "Dream of You." Especially, I just I started okay. crying. It, I was so moved. song wasn't a pop record everybody was expecting the third october project record and it, it totally confused radio and in many ways it it hurt my career on the really? other hand oh yeah the oh, first solo radio, album? radio would not play me they just they didn't get it and yeah. at that time there was a sort of i call them the folk police and uh, a lot of alternative radio okay. so they're like oh i don't know what this is yeah. but some there's a song on that going home from that civil war film they say there's a place where dreams have all gone they never said where but i think i know it's miles through 
just over the dawn on the road that will take me home. I know in my bones I've been here before. The ground feels the same, though the This road that will take me home Love waits for me round the bend Leads me endlessly on Surely sorrow shall That is still the number one song that people write to me about that they've played at their funerals, really? that, they, that people request that, that, yeah. um, uh, so you, you just never know. Yeah. But, but it, to me, the record is very eclectic, too eclectic. If I had, I think I should, I think it should have been shaped a little bit better, but I, what did, what did I know, yeah. you know? Um, and I didn't have a manager at the time. So oh. whatever they told me to do, I'd be like, okay, it's pretty classical if you say so. Right. And, uh, you know, but they were lovely people. Yeah. Really lovely. Peter Gelb is just, what a what a man. With graceful, elegant yeah. man. Good. And Good. really, and he really believed in me. Um, so when they sort of, Sony Classical kind of fell apart. And then I had a, you know, I went home and cried a lot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They, they, you know, they were bought out or taken over by BMG and everybody that I knew was fired, everybody. And then they didn't renew my contract. So I, but I regrouped, you know, put on my, put on my nice fur hat and went out and got a manager. And, um, Good. and then it was that manager who said, we need to do something different with you. What about doing a cover record? Is there a record that was important to you? And he put me together with David Werner and Mark Doyle. And I began to go up to Syracuse. This was a labor of love. We didn't have a deal. And we put together Dark Side of the Moon. the 
Lo and behold, we performed it for the suits at, at V2 Records. They flew up and they loved it again, kind of signed us on the spot. And yeah. just as that record was about to come out, poor old V2 ran out of money, kind of got taken over. I think the only person left at V2 or whatever remnant is, is some some old guy with a visor over like an accounting book. You know what I mean? That's, that's all that's left. And um, so... Again, very difficult. Uh, yeah. to, you know, I was because I I really had a great time with that record, and I thought it was so well done. And then um, I was ready to give up the music business, and uh, I learned to grow a garden. I didn't know anything about that. Okay. Just got back. You know, just to take my mind. I said, uh -huh. my whole life has been dedicated to this. I've got to change my life. And lo and behold, at the same time, I met my husband, hmm. and um, and. You know, he was a keeper and yeah. uh, my whole life changed. And he was the one that said, why aren't you out singing? Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm done. And, and I don't want to go out without a band. And then he's, he's very forceful person. You, you, you don't say no to him. Okay. And he said, you're going back out here. There's your guitar. You're going out. And it's like, no, no, I won't. And he made me go out and play. And I, uh, but something began to happen. I, I got more comfortable and more confident. And certainly my first shows weren't great with the guitar because, you know, I, I just hadn't ever focused on it. And, mm -hmm. but as I got better, but I will say the first or the second show I ever did in front of a big audience, like a, a you know, cafe club cafe in Pittsburgh, who shows up at David Werner? Really? <laughs> who is a perfectionist? And I'm like, no, no, of all the people, not him. And he was so, because I, I love him. I yeah. love him. And I respect him tremendously. But and after the show, he came up because, you know, Mayor, got to hand it to you. Takes a lot of balls to get up there and do what you do with the way you play. <laughs> like, yes, really? I Yes, I know. And, but he was right. When someone's Good. right, I mean, what am I going to say? You're right. Yeah. And, um, but but he said but he did follow up because but you know they seem to like it and so I is that a compliment I, just, I can't quite tell it is. It's, you okay. have you have to know you'd have to know David to appreciate okay. it and and again um but he was right and I had to just keep at it and then I got better and better and better yeah and then I uh, I made a record Love and Gravity with the great John Lissauer wonderful wonderful producer did you know known for his work with with a lot of things but mostly with Leonard Cohen. And then um, I, I made that and got back out there again. And then I've done yeah. a bunch of stuff since. And of course, that leads us to, I did a Christmas record, which. You did. Good people, all this Christmas time, consider well and bear in mind what our good God for us has done. In sending he his beloved son with Mary only we should pray to God with love this Christmas day in Bethlehem upon the moon there was a blessed 
Christmas record for people who don't like Christmas record, and which is me. I don't like, but I I, I love this record. I actually it. play it all year round. Oh, good. It's my only record of mine that I actually play a lot. I love really? it. Yes, it's I great. really love it. It's very suitable. I love it too. Yes, it is. And, um, so then comes the lockdowns and all of this stuff. And I, and, and the personal stuff with my family that was really, really hard. And so Mark and I, Mark Doyle decided, you know, we had such a good time making the, the Christmas record. Let's just, let's just make a record and have fun. And I, I just, I didn't want to write. I just wanted to immerse myself. I wanted an escape mm-hmm. in songs of songs that, I, I learned how to play guitar with songs that when I was developing my own taste, songs that have stayed with me all these years, like, like they're old friends to me. Yeah, yeah. I needed, I needed them around me. My mother had died. My sister had died, not of COVID or anything, just old age and ALS. Yeah. And, oh but, but I just was feeling so uh, rootless. And, and so these songs just, just wrapped around me and, yeah. And, and, and I love them so much. And I, but Mark and I were insisted that we had to put our own stamp on it. I never do a cover unless I make it my own. And we tried, you know, there are many people I could have covered Sandy Denny, but I'd already covered Sandy on the Christmas record. And, um, but I did want to cover Richard and Linda Thompson had to cover them. So I picked a more obscure song of theirs, but one that has always haunted me. And uh, that's the great Valerio. And then, of course, Neil, I, I had to do Neil Young because of course. those first I bought those records. Um, and and I, you know, with I, I as I say I'm in my record notes, uh, the liner notes that, um, you know, those Columbia for a dollar, you get uh-huh. 10 albums or 12. I forget how many. But two of his records, those early records were what I bought and I played them endlessly really kind of it's kind of like you you're mainlining that and yes. I, learned, I was learning to play guitar with those songs again they they just become part of you yeah. and um gosh i and you know there's later stuff elo i cover the elo song
with me like the 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 the, the words the, the verses just have lived inside me like like a wise old uncle's advice and it. um so no every single song yeah. on this new record has has lived inside me yeah. all these years and of course then the, i had to do another pink floyd I, i'll do any excuse to do a pink floyd and that's you know i, I had to do comfortably no i know Not if you can hear me Is there anybody home? Come on now I hear you're feeling dumb Well, I can ease your pain Get you on your feet again Relax I'll need some information first Just the basic facts Can you show me where it hurts? There is no pain you are receiving A distant ship smoke on the horizon You are only coming through in waves Your lips move 
ballsy move. That is ballsy. Yeah. So, okay. well, after, after, after doing Dark Side of the Moon, true. it doesn't get any ballsier than that. That's you know? true. Good so, point. Okay, yeah. so this is, uh, you just basically summed up your whole career. We could pretty there much cut it off right <laughs> here if you wanted. Um, no, I have a number of stories and questions about everything you just said. Number one, right. um, when you perform live, is it just you and a guitar now, or do you go out as a band? Because you're gonna—I live oh, in Denver, and you're gonna be here in I'm a couple be, of weeks that I'm gonna yeah, go. I, I, so I, I, I can't afford at this point in my career to bring an entire band and fly them and feed them and yeah. walk them. I, so on, on anything where I have to get on a plane, yeah. I go. I do a solo show. Okay. And um, and it's a different show. It's a it's an intimate show. Mm-hmm. I tell a lot of stories. That's another thing that that uh, emerged from me that I didn't know was there. And, I and it, it was mostly it was, I started telling stories so it would take people's minds off how bad a guitar player I was. That is the honest to God truth. To be like, it's more like, look over here. Yeah. See the shiny thing? <laughs> <laughs> so it's true. Uh, and, but I got better. And also yeah. I got an electric guitar. Ooh. I got a reverb pedal and a delay pedal. Nice. And I love that guitar and that, that created an atmospheric sense. And so I never wanted to overplay like a lot of folk singers, just boom, 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 you know, uh-huh. overplay the guitar, strum, strum. I don't play like that. It's minimal, but I make it extremely atmospheric. Okay. So it's, it, and it works for me. Okay, that, great. That really changed everything for me. Okay. But, You're going to be at the, oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I'm going to be at the Soil Dove in you Denver. Are. I know, I'll be there. Second. You come there. So and- is the day that the record comes out. I was just going to say that exact thing. Yes. Yeah. And I will be there. You've come to the Soil Dove. The Soil Dove is just down the street from my house. And um, oh. I, for whatever reason, have not been able to see you before. So I'm excited to go this time. Well, that's wonderful. Well, I should I'll put you on the list. Let me know. Thank you. That would All be right? great if you did. Thank you. Yes, I will do um, that. Definitely. Uh, I, um, okay. Another thing is you mentioned that first solo album. Other side of time, right? Mm-hmm. I remember. Am I yes. Right? I got to give a plug for Raging Child. That's one of my favorite songs of yours. Don't try to run vocal on that really me too she's motioning me too i love that song especially your vocal on there i worked for tower records uh in their corporate offices and regional marketing when that album came out and i remember getting it on my desk we we would get stacks of cds all day you know and um so happy to see that one because 
I had liked, as I said, I'd liked October project and I hadn't heard from you since I didn't know what was going on. And here was this thing. And I remember listening to it thinking, Oh, so she's, it got her doing a little bit of everything. You mentioned kind of going into that like classical realm that made sense. And, and the songs that you sing for the, for the movies and all that kind of, that's the thing that's interesting about you, Mary, is that there's a like coffee house sensibility with a Carnegie hall type sound and you could your 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 ability your talent could land anywhere on this spectrum and i would imagine people being not entirely sure where to put you where is mary going to be the most successful we could put her in a coffee house and she'd be great we could put her in front of thousands of people on a stage and she'd be great if i had to if i had to go ping and and i could have any career that i wanted it wouldn't be Madonna. It wouldn't be anything like that. It, it would. I. I wish I had had a career like, say, Mercedes Sosa, who is one of the greatest singers. Oh, oh, really? You, oh, your your ears are okay. Ears. I've got a homework assignment. Me, when we're Mercedes done Sosa was a, a singer from South America. She is beloved by most Latin Americans. Okay. She was part of the, um, they call it the Nueva Cancion movement, which was sort of very political folk songs in South America. But she has, for me, the most beautiful voice I have ever heard, a deep voice. And I love the guitar arrangements that frame her her vocals. But she's, she, you know, she sang into her, you know, later years. Um, she's dead now. But she she could sing all different kinds of nice. songs and um you know <laughs> let's say this I, but i was always thinking you know i'd be good being sort of the thinking man's nana muscuri you know what that i mean that makes sense yes that makes <laughs> it's sense it's true it's it's yeah. i would have been extremely happy i think that i was born a little bit at the wrong time you know or even being yeah. sort of like you know how odetta could sort of be sort of wear high heels and a dress yes. on stage. And, but still there was a sort of, there was an elegance to her, but she was still a folk singer. Yes. You know, um, that would have been, I would have been extremely you would have been happy great at that. Yes. With that kind of career. You would have but been great at that. It is what it is. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. By the way, I was going to tell you, it, I have my notes in front of me and I have notes on a second screen. So yeah. if you're talking and I look distracted, like I'm not paying attention, I'm just referring to my oh, notes. Oh, it's right okay. Now. Okay. I just <laughs> want you to know, I'm always worried that people are thinking, what's he checking his email? No, I'm looking at everything. So <laughs> in fact, something I want to mention to you is we have Patreon supporters and mm-hmm. I always let them know who I'm interviewing. And if they want to submit questions, they can. Mm-hmm. We had a couple people chime in for you. One of okay. them specifically, I don't know what his real name is, but he goes by Sugar Mouse on here. And I think that's a funny name. First of all, he had heard, he didn't know if this was true, and I haven't heard you say this in other interviews, that when you did the Dark Side of the Moon album, the tapes had gotten destroyed in a fire and you had to re-record. Is that true? Okay, it kind of true. Here, here's what happened. Um, the surround mix that Bob Clear Mountain had done, not the stereo, but the surround, um, you know, when everything was dropped, you know, and gone and the it was left at the mastering studio and we didn't think we had a copy of it. And there was a fire at the mastering studio. So during the lockdown, my producer, Mark Doyle found an unmastered copy in his deep, deep in his files. And so we had it remastered 
Uh, and, um, you know, it, that thing took off by itself. I, I didn't even promote it. It, it just, but w- among the audiophile world, it, it, it was just passed around. And uh, that was, uh, that was very, very gratifying after all these years. No it kidding. Found, and, found its, it, it found its audience. Well, and it's a, it's won these awards for the mix and the 5.1 yeah. surround. Right. And Bob Clareton mountain, I mean, you know, this he's legendary and he's, uh, he's putting his, stamp on what you've done how did you even get that to happen that was he was a friend of of i think especially david and um we had had a mix of the record by another producer who shall go unmentioned but it's just the magic was it was a good mix but the magic wasn't there There there's something and we knew it and but they weren't going to give us any more money to mix it so David pulled a string and he, he begged Bob Clear Mountain and Bob did it for nothing. What? Nothing. No way. So he did it as a favor. And um, he late, we know, he told us later that he, at some big convention of, you know, audio people, he yeah. ran into Sir George Martin and he said, you know, I told him that this was my best work since Avalon, Roxy Music's Avalon. What? In terms of the mix. And, you know, I didn't know, I don't have surround mix in my house. I, and I was like, what's the big deal? What's everybody making a big deal about? And then Mark sat me down and he said, you have to hear this. So he sat me down in his big system in the middle of it, handed me a glass of wine and said, listen, and I, I, there's no going back after really? you hear that. Really? Oh, uh, uh, it was, it was just oh, uh, outstanding. I, I, so that convinced me that I had to release it. I had okay. a new cover design that I yeah. felt was more appropriate, yeah. thematically appropriate. Yeah. And, and that was it. There it is. I've never been able to have that experience you just mentioned with the sound. I know yeah. that people, I don't, I'm like you, I don't have a high-end stereo or access right. to one or know anyone that has one. Yeah. I just yeah. know they're supposedly really transformational. I'd love to hear them one day and you got that experience with you with your own stuff oh oh yeah in fact i've been told by some people that are you know real audiophiles that it's very helpful if if uh, for people with ptsd that they kind of get addicted to surround sound because it's it's visceral yeah it it resonates inside you and you're 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 just being surrounded and and with something like dark side which was so layered and layered when i heard the surround i heard things that i had forgotten i'd done it's like oh i remember that yeah oh yeah and and so um it's just if if you have a dense record it's just a beautiful way to hear it and now of course there's a whole new technology coming out of atmos dolby atmos which i don't i don't know (laughs) i don't know how an ordinary person has speakers on the ceiling but um it is it's the latest sexy thing you know um i will do i am planning to do a couple of songs off this new album in dolby atmos oh good and um i just have to i'm sort of waiting to see what are the standout tracks yeah definitely ruby two not ruby uh, tuesday afternoon Does it? 
is the one again that is the most layered yes. and dense and um, would would really bear up under the scrutiny of of an Atmos mix. You know, it's great you said that. So speaking about the new album, which is called "Can't Get It Out of My Head," yeah. um, my two favorite songs on there is one is Tuesday afternoon, mm-hmm. probably because that was, and I thought about this probably because that would have been my favorite song going into this album. Anyway, I've yeah. always loved, I love everything you did on here, but I've always yeah. loved that song specifically. Yeah. I love your, you, we've been talking all this time about Judy Collins, the since you've asked cover that you sing on there is gorgeous. And I was less familiar. I'm more of like a Judy Collins greatest hits guy. So I right. was less familiar with that song. I know, and I kind of maybe prefer your version. It was incredible. So I thought that was such a beautiful, it's so great to hear you talk about how much you love Judy, because that is a wonderful kind of way to honor her with that song. I I think so. I mean, I I, I just, I I love her and she's still going. She's still so creative, ferocious. Yeah. And and was always a great uh, champion of, of of new songwriters and uh, and just oh those those records those early records those Joshua Rifkin arrangements they're so delicate and uh, they just again she is a timeless performer she, absolutely and, and everything she does has stood the test of time and I think because of her I always wanted to do things that again would have that common denominator of standing the test of time wouldn't, wouldn't be pigeonholed to like the eighties or nineties or two thousands. Um, what's one of the reasons that I called my, that Sony record, the other side of time. Um, I just, I wanted everything to have that quality where if you put the record on in 50 years, it wouldn't seem dated mm. to you. Beautiful. I, I get it. A couple yeah. people, speaking of things, not being dated, a couple people asked specifically around the, um, Dawning of the Day song. This morning early I walked on while my darling was in the dream The last sweet days of summer bloomed and dressed the trees in 
I mean, I always, I know that appeared elsewhere, but I always think of it as a 9-11 song, for better or worse. It is. Um, I mean, yeah. that's, okay. So when you, were you commissioned to write that? Did you write that on your own? What's the story of that? All right. It's a, it's a good story. So okay. Sony, you know, releases a lot of soundtracks and they had sure. said, you know, you should, you should do that. And yeah. so they, um, I, I, I think they kind of elbowed me in to, to this soundtrack because they flew me up to Toronto to work with Michael Dana who is a, you know, Oscar winning uh, composer for, for film. And they said, well, just have her do vocalese over. So I was, all I was doing was, Ooh, and I said to him, oh, you know, are, you're using that old Irish ballad, The Dawning of the Day. He's like, yeah, you know, we, I thought it would be appropriate to do sort of variations on that. And then <laughs> I do what I sometimes do. It's called biting off more than I can chew. And I said to him there, huh, hmm, you know, you know, I'm looking up the, the lyrics to the words. It's like, oh, this is, these are silly lyrics. They're so deedledy deedledy. And I thought, you know, the movie is so serious. And I said, what if I wrote a whole new lyric to that song that would tell the story of 9-11, but tell it as if it had been written 300 years ago? And he's like, well, you can, but you have about three days to do it. And I was like, <laughs> well, you just got oh, done saying you like why? those kinds of deadlines. I know, right? I know, but I was sort of like, why, why did I say it? Why? So I remember I, I you know, I went back to my, my room and that song was written on cocktail napkins. Okay. Really? From, from the hotel bar, but I had them everywhere, all over the house. And, and, it was about, and it was so funny because it was about four in the morning and I really had to get that song in the next day. I mean, that was it. Mm -hmm. And, but I didn't have that one line, like you had to tell the story, but then you need, you need lines that are just more, more poetic in that sort of gauzy sense, you know, and I didn't have that. And, and you know it when you hear it. And so I, I was delirious by this point. And I had been reading uh, the, the biography of Edna St. Vincent Millay at the time. It was a big, thick paperback. And I could, I, I sort of laid my head down on the desk and I could, I could sort of see the spine and it was her picture. And I was so delirious. I started talking to her just like, Edna, Edna, help me. I'm just, I'm trying, I'm, I've run out of steam. Uh -huh. Just, just help me. And I'm going to tell you something that happened. I wish this happened all the time to me. Yeah, yeah. She and, and immediately I got a download into my head and I'm going to tell you what the line was in that song, but the edge is moving nearer now inside the fading sun and calling, calling out to them, my brothers, one by one. If you know the work of Edna St. Vincent Millay, that sounds just like her. Really? Okay. 
I'm I'm joking. I just I remember what I I wrote it down immediately. And normally, you know, sometimes you cross it out. No, 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 no. This was just wrote it down. That was it. And and I thought that's it. That's the line that pulls the whole thing together. I was able to put everything together, write it, type it up. And there you go. And it was like, thanks, Edna. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happened. And that is, I mean, I lined out. Well, you called it poetic, and it is a line like yeah. that doesn't just I don't know. I mean, you gotta you gotta search for something like that. I, I get know. it. That sounds inspired. That's yeah. incredible. That's yeah. incredible. Should have um, gave her credit. <laughs> good, good. Okay. One other thing, another one of our listeners, Brian Morris, who has been one of the biggest proponents all these years to get you on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, he I mean, he had kind of a basic question. I mean, what why did October Project end? And you know, he that's has some theories, I, I, and I don't know. Well, what can... are, what are, well I, 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 I don't want to go into sort of, you know, interband okay. thing too much. But I will say this: yes, uh, we made two beautiful records, different, each one different. I, I tend to prefer the first one. Me too. Um, but the second one, I love "Deep as You Go." like that thing that made us special wasn't as present on the second record. It made us sound the second record. We sort of sound like a lot of other people. I get that. Kind of. You I know what I mean? As, awesome I do. I bought it as soon as it came out and I had similar. And, and, and so, but the other, the other thing was that they told me in no uncertain terms that I would never be able to write, contribute to writing nothing not a chance like this at a point like this will never happen. And I knew that in order to grow as an artist, I, I had to, to branch out and it was also insulting too. And, and um, you know, I was told you, you could never do this on your own. You could never have a band. You could never go, oh, come on, yeah. Mary, really? Yeah. And it was, it was that, which was so patronizing um, and stupid really. Um, what I couldn't have a band. It's called hiring people and getting a music director. Ain't brain surgery, fella. Right. And then the other one is uh, that I, I I wouldn't be able to write. And so I it was 
But to be honest, one of the greatest gifts anyone has ever given me, I don't think I've ever told anybody this, but when I was told point blank that, and in an incredibly patronizing way, I thought at that moment, a click went off in me and I thought, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Because that is going to provide the jet fuel for the rest of my life. And I am going to have a band and I'm going to get a deal, not one, but two, three. And um, it, it was, it was, it was better than somebody telling me how great I was actually. Yeah, it, makes sense. it was yeah. a great, it was the greatest gift I've ever gotten period. That's a good so, way to look at it. So that's what happened. And you know, they, they went on to do their own thing and they're happy and I'm happy. And um, so it all worked out for the best in the end. Good. It sounded like they viewed you as a hired hand. I mean, you were just there to sort of do what you were told, and that wasn't. They knew I wasn't just a hired. No, no, no. They knew I wasn't just yeah. a hired hand. You know, but it's also with a band like that. There's so many people, and unless you are the writers, you're also just you don't have any income. Yeah. You don't nothing. I mean, I, I, I had nothing, mm -hmm. so I had to go back to work immediately as soon as October project disbanded. And, um, and that's what you have to do. That's, that's yeah. happened to me many times in my life. You regroup, you go back and you start, you dust yourself off and you start all over again. I also had to develop my whole audience again. It was basically starting from scratch. I, I wasn't giving the mailing list. I wasn't giving any, any contact. So, but again, that was a gift too, because it forced me to really figure out how am I going to do this? And, so, you know, I, I hired a great PR person when I was ready to go out with my own stuff. I hired a great radio promo person. I hired, it, it made me, it forced me to go beyond what I thought I could do. Again, a great gift. Is that, um, I hope this isn't too pointed of a question. You still tour as Mary Fall of October Project. Well, you ever see of, being able to take that part off? of that is because I'm kind of stuck with it now. Oh, yeah? Okay. Well, it's because of Facebook's rules mm. that if I change that, I'm going to lose my entire audience base. Yeah, and so now I, I did it at the beginning because so many people, I wasn't featured. Yeah. So nobody knew that I had a solo career. So I would go places. And, and to this day, I still have it. The last time I played Boston, half the audience was there to see me solo for the first time. And it was like, I didn't know you had a career. I didn't know. And they're like, how did I not know this? It's yeah. like, how did you not know it? And yeah, um, really. so that's why in one way, it's like, God, I'd like to drop that. It's a yeah. ball and chain. On the other hand, I have to, it is my duty to venues, we're all in this together. They are struggling to stay alive, to fill those rooms. So if that helps to fill a room, mm -hmm. I have to live with it. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay, so what's next for you then? I mean, this this covers, you. I mean, whether it's both sides now or many of the other covers you've sang in your career, you do them so well and you always put your own stamp on it. and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air and feathered canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that way but now they only block the sun
Maybe it doesn't allow you to write to the degree that I'm sure you can and want to. What's next? What are you going to uh, do writing next? Is, you know, write, writing is still terrifying for me. Um, again, I, I love it when someone gives me an assignment. For example, when I, uh, you know, Anne Rice had contacted me several years ago and the writer wrote, wrote Interview with the Vampire and um, and she uh, she discovered me. I guess people had recommended and she just went on and on that I was her favorite singer and da, da, da. And so I ended up writing the theme song for a book she put out. It was it was put on the audiobook version of um, The Wolves of Midwinter. When shadows fall and the fires burn, the forest calls to Again, that was easy for me to do. I read the book. She's such a, you know, you know, it, it's just so, so much beautiful imagery. It's very cinematic the way she writes. So it made it easy for me. And um, and then we end. I ended up, interestingly, writing several songs with John Lissauer because Anne had asked me to write, you know, uh, on spec some songs for a show that she was it that maybe get was going to be on television uh, based around the vampire Lestat. And, um, you know, we just, we just kept putting them in, putting them in. And, um, and I, then she died. So um, I, I know that they have, there's something coming on AMC. Okay. So um, I, I don't know if those songs ever got to them or yeah. what, or we just decided to go into another musical direction. But okay. I mean, I did, I wrote John and I, it's like, we are just vampired out at this point. <laughs> so it's like, I don't want to hear another blood song again. I'm done. Okay. Just vampired out. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I can imagine. Yeah. I can yeah. imagine. Okay. Hey. Let me look over my notes real quick. Make All sure right. I touched on everything I wanted to touch on. Um, right. I've been wanting, I'm so grateful you did this with me, Mary. Thank you. This is really fun. You're a wonderful interviewer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, uh, well, I only really talk to people that interest me and that I care about. And I've been invested in you since March of, well, summer of 1994. 
Oh, I remember. I remember a couple of things, and I'd, I'd be really sad if I forgot these. Okay. Uh, my understanding was that going back to October Project again, you guys would play CBGB sometimes, and eventually uh, had some yeah. kind of like a residency at Cine. And I, whenever I think of oh, Cine, Cafe Cine was the place for us, absolutely. So okay. It, you, you know, it, I'm sure your audience knows a little bit about Cafe Chenet. Jeff Buckley was signed out of there. That's what I think of when I think of Chenet. Okay, Chenet is Jeff. I was a yeah, huge It's so Jeff funny because I remember when the first time I ever saw him, he was going on after us. And I just, I hadn't even heard him sing. I just looked at him. It's like, oh, that's a star. Yeah. Just yeah. had an aura about him. And um, sort of James Dean-esque. Yes. You know, and um, that voice. Oh, my goodness. And um, so, but the, it was a little hole in the wall, really tiny uh, Irish cafe that was run by uh, this guy who was just sort of really in with all of the Irish music scenes. So you never knew who was going to drop in when they were in New York. Sometimes it'd be Bono or Sinead O'Connor. But um, every night there was just fabulous music there. And, you know, they'd squeeze them in and uh, hanging out the door just, you know. And um, so we played there over and over and over again. And, you know, obviously record companies started coming down and scouting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we were being sort of courted for a while by different ones. And then we ended up getting a deal with Epic. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So did you interact with Jeff much other than just seeing him? Did you converse with him ever? Not much. No, I'm okay. a very shy person. Um, yeah. I just am. And, okay. uh, and also, you know, we'd be cleaning up and, and, you know, just getting our equipment off so he could go on. So you're, you're very busy and you're cleaning up and the car is waiting. And yeah. so yeah. no, no, I didn't interact with him. It's interesting. He's one of the, I was a huge fan of his. And when I think of untimely rock deaths, he's, Probably one of the biggest ones. From, I mean, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Bowie and Maurice White of Earth, Wind and Fire. But all these people, when they die, you've got a canon of music that they've left behind for you to enjoy. Yeah. Jeff yeah. was just getting started. It's one perfect album. You know, there was more coming. And to have yeah. him pass away when he did was really horrible. But did yeah. you play CBGB too? We played CBGBs um, at the beginning, uh, which... <laughs> was the dankest, darkest place we have ever played. I I'm mean, shocked you ever played there. It's disgusting. It was disgusting. <laughs> the bathroom there, I, I, <laughs> you want to like, yourself and, like zip her up and put plastic over you. And then, um, but then they opened up CB's gallery next door, which was uh, very nice and shiny and new. And uh, that was more for the, you know, triple A folky acts. And we ended up playing that place much, much more often and oh gosh, we played all the rooms. You know what room I really miss in New York is the bottom line. Really? I love it. Oh yeah. You could just pay a fee, go in and see three acts in one night. And it was, I, I miss it. I, I really miss that place. I um, so yeah. And then, you know, one of the greatest gigs we ever did. And I'm so, my father was there before he died. So it was nice for him to see a sold out hall before he went and um, it was town hall in New York. That was just, Ooh, that was one of the last shows we ever did as a band. And wow. that was really something. Yeah. I bet that reminds me sugar mouse, that guy I mentioned earlier, I mm. this guy, I don't know. Um, he was asking he or they were asking specifically around your, I know, is it mock chunk opera house? Yes. Mock is that chunk how opera. you pronounce it? Yes. Yes. It was, uh, 
It's in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, which right. used to be called Mock Chunk, Pennsylvania. Okay. And the interesting thing, it's an odd little haven um, in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, but it has this opera house and it's a really cute, it's a very Christmassy town. And, um, but at, at one time in the United States, it was the wealthiest town in the United States because it was coal, coal barons lived there. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, you've heard of the Molly Maguires. Yes. That, that story. Well, that's, they were all from that particular area. And um, so I guess he might, some baron must've, built this opera house for his, his opera loving wife. And, um, but it also has a great studio there, a recording studio called um, Purple Audio. And they were, they will record shows there and it's magnificent. And I decided, oh, I should make a, you know, a live recording. And then it's like, well, if I'm going to do that, why don't I film it? And then I uh, was able to get a crew uh, on their off hours that does PBS filming because PBS start, if you see those concerts, mm -hmm. you have to film them with certain best practices. And one of them is you have to show the audience. Oh. They have to be lit in a certain way. You have to show audience reactions. Mm -hmm. So we filmed it just like that. And then we sold it to, to PBS. Okay. So that was first lovely. of all, that, that album is on Spotify and, it might, it's one of yours that I go back to a lot because it encapsulates all everything. Everything, everything. yeah, yeah. October Project, all your solo stuff. I love it. And Be My Hero is one of my other favorite songs of yours. And the live version on there when it rocks out is so Yeah, good. that's really but fun. It is. So Sugar Mouse specifically wanted to know if that would ever come out on Blu-ray or DVD or anything like that. You know, it can't. Um, first because of all- you sold it to PBS? That's part of the reason. Um, when you do, it has to do with, I don't want to get boring here and legalistic, but okay. when you do sync rights for anything visual, you have to negotiate for those rights with, you know, and first and foremost, I, it's almost impossible to get sync rights for anything having to do with Pink Floyd. Oh, it would cost, I'd have to, it would cost me so much money. I couldn't, but if it's a PBS show, they are exempt from so they could sell it if they wanted to and i certainly offered it to them if you want to sell this as a dvd they don't have to pay any sync rights okay um so that makes sense so it may show up on of one the of those there yeah they, public they television when they uh, for the donations maybe it'll show up on that someday oh it does i still you know oh, every so often oh yeah good okay good okay well, um, okay. Last question, Mary, what's your favorite story? You've been at this for 30 years or so, and you've probably met some of your heroes. What, when you sit back in that beautiful brown leather chair you're in and you think you would never believe the things I've seen, what is the thing that you just, you dine on? Well, I don't, I don't like to meet heroes a lot. For, that's one thing because inevitably they are, they are disappointing. And, um, I would just, I'd rather just keep them on the pedestal. And, um, and again, as I said, I'm, I'm a very shy person and, uh, but the most, so it has, I, I would say it has to do with, I have two of them. They both have to do with October project. Okay. And, uh, it had to do after long after we had disbanded that version of October project disbanded. Um, I happened to be out with my husband at one of these, sort of cocktail party-ish, you know, benefit things that we do not frequent. Like we just, we're both very shy people. And, but there we were. And um, I'm the worst at cocktail party chit chat. 
it's awkward. But there I was, I had a martini and I found myself talking to one of the wealthiest humans on the planet, very powerful human. Um, I won't say who, this person has passed on, but um, (laughs) he was sort of giving me the once over like, and what do you do? Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm a singer songwriter. You know, you probably don't Mm -hmm. know me. You know, And, and he's like, Oh, I said, well, uh, well, I, 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 I used to be with this band called October Project. And this guy literally, he's like, <gasps> he literally breathed in like, a, <gasps> he's like, October. he's like, yeah, he's like, he said, you, you saved my life. What? I did. <laughs> well, I didn't Whoa. know. And then he gave me like this awkward hug. And, and. Um, and that was really strange. And, uh, you know, and if I, if I were more of a networker, you know, I would have worked that, but, uh, but I'm not, it's probably, it's another reason why, you know, I, I, maybe I don't have that sort of, cause I, I just, it's, it's just not something it, I would have benefited having someone in my life that was sort of that end of things, you know what I mean? I do. Uh, But it is what it is. I mean, uh, whatever has happened in my career, for the most part, I take full responsibility for. Wild. What a yeah. great story. That's hilarious. Mary, <laughs> yeah. I think you're so special. I have Thank thought you. that for years. And I'm so grateful Thank to you. talk to you um, and just understand your story a little bit better because I just think you're fascinating. Thank you for chatting with me. Thank you. I, this was a lovely conversation. All right. There you have it, Mary Fall. Uh, such a wonderful lady and I just think that story is interesting and I love her enthusiasm for the music that she makes and the covers that she did so again that new album comes out this Friday the 22nd Can't Get You Out of My Head some wonderful covers and I get to see her live in concert that night I'm pretty jazzed about that Um, I'm going to close it out with a song this is another October Project song it's called Be My Hero we just talked about it a few minutes ago but it's on that live album live from the Mock Chunk Opera House. I hope I'm saying that right. Anyway, um, I love this tune and it rocks. And I love Mary, but she doesn't rock very often. It's more kind of ballads and, you know, epic, uh, I don't know, soft rock or whatever. But this really rocks. There's like guitar solos and everything, which doesn't happen very often. I love this tune. Uh, now, next week, uh, next week's huge. Next week, you get to hear me talk to. Uh, who I have stated many, many times is either my favorite or second favorite producer of all time. We had two long conversations, and it's probably going to be two episodes of just excellent insidery music talk. That's what's coming up next week. I am so excited to share this with you. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Mamakevich, my right-hand man. Thanks, buddy, for everything. You guys can like our Facebook page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.
I want nothing, nothing else. I want.